Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're concluding The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're reading chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 15, Landfall. Although the Barbados beach seemed to rock and shift under my feet, it felt to me like the promised land. To this day, I do not know how I found the strength to walk across it, but walk I did. I had to keep a sharp eye on my equipment, as the people gathered on the beach seemed to regard the contents of the boat as some sort of manna from heaven, seizing everything within their grasp. In a flash, they emptied the box of cigarettes which Captain Carter's wife had given me on board the Arachica. One of them picked up my underwater harpoon gun, for which there were no harpoons left, and after asking me what it was used for, seemed extremely flattered when I made him a present of it. Someone else made off with an old shirt, and a third made signs that he had taken a fancy to the watch on my wrist. When I told him it was the only one I had, he pointed to my wrist compass and said, But there, you have another one. In spite of these hindrances, I managed to unload the dinghy little by little, making a separate pile of anything that had been damaged, including a number of things which had suffered at the last moment, when the dinghy became completely waterlogged under the battering of the final waves. Then, with the help of a few spectators, I pulled out the still-sealed crate of food. When they saw on it the words, rations, they shouted, food, food. I saw that it was going to be impossible for me to keep an eye on everything. At any moment, I might find the food crate broken open, which, even if I had salvaged the contents, would have destroyed the evidence for my theory. By then, a local policeman had arrived with the information that the nearest station was two miles away. I had to get there on foot, and how I made it, I cannot imagine. I had the presence of mind to take immediate steps to prove that my food reserve was intact. One or two of the more savvy spectators agreed to serve as witness, and I chose the local schoolmistress and lay preacher, together with the policeman. Then I handed round my American tinned food, which was received with delight. I have since been reproached for not immediately placing my logbooks under seal, as proof that I had had no time to falsify the entries. I can only answer such armchair criticisms by asking how much can be expected from someone who has just reached land after 65 days of total isolation and immobility. Slowly, pushed and pulled by the natives, drinking a glass of water at every turning, bathed in sweat and exhausted, I finally reached the police station. The officer in charge was clearly at a loss to decide whether I was a pirate or an exceptionally foolhardy yachtsman. But with the splendid correctitude of the British policeman, who is at the same time father confessor to those confided to his charge, he sat me down in front of a cup of tea and a piece of bread and butter. I had begun the battle involved in returning to a normal diet. I therefore restricted myself to the tea with several spoonfuls of sugar. The scene was certainly picturesque, with the police station surrounded by hundreds of people all dressed in the bright colours so dear to the inhabitants of these islands. Finally, at about 11 o'clock, I received a personal telephone call from Colonel Reggie Michelin, Commissioner of Police in Barbados, now Commissioner in Jamaica. This seemed to make a favourable impression on the local officer, who offered me a shower. The Commissioner had told me that a car was on its way to take me to Bridgetown, and I arrived in the capital at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. My first question was to ask whether the yacht Nymph Errant had arrived. It got here on the 1st of December, 23 days ago, I was told, but I think it has left again for Antigua to await the arrival of Anne Davison. It looked as though there had been a slight misunderstanding with the captain of the Arachica, because when he asked me where I expected to land, I had said the Antilles. Now the British phase for the Antilles is the West Indies. 
but he must have understood Antigua and had sent off a message to that place. I presumed that my friends and the Stanilands had gone there in the hope of meeting both Anne Davison and me. Someone else, however, reported that the yacht was still in the basin. I was received by the colonel, a typical Briton, young and dynamic, who had with him the French consul, Monsieur Collins. After explaining in broad terms that I had hoped to rest up for a few days before returning to France, I saw another car arrive. In it were my three friends, John, Bonnie and Winnie, who shouted with joy at the sight of me and insisted that I was to regard their yacht as my home. I accepted with delight and resigned myself to staying rather longer than I expected. They were accompanied by one of the local physicians, Dr. David Payne, who shortly afterwards gave me a very thorough physical examination in order to determine the exact consequences of my ordeal. I was still feeling quite sprightly, fairly steady on my legs and even capable of walking around and climbing a few stairs. It was only during the days that followed that I started to pay the price for the immobility, protracted solitude and abnormal life I had just experienced. I complied with the customs formalities, sent messages off to France through the charming consul and by six o'clock was on board the nymph errant. Although I had decided to take nothing but liquid nourishment for at least a week, I now gave up on the idea and began to eat a little solid food. I retired to my cabin in a state of nervous exhaustion, but found it impossible to sleep. I started tinkering with my radio, taking off the nylon cover which had protected it and cleaning the parts that I could take it back to France in the best possible condition. At about 10 o'clock, I tuned it into the BBC, and to the stupefaction of my friends, we heard the announcer of the BBC Overseas Service say in French, Dr. Bombard, we have received a message from the captain of the Arachica and wish to express our appreciation for your work on behalf of castaways and the hope that this message reaches you somewhere at sea in the Heretic. We shall be playing for you tomorrow the Brandenburg Concerto at such and such a time on such and such a wavelength. I do not remember the details now. Please have your set tuned in. The next day, by then advised of my arrival in Barbados, the BBC sent me a telegram to confirm that they would indeed play the concerto just the same. During the day, the two things happened which could afford me the greatest pleasure. Apart from the message I received from my wife, the Royal Barbados Yacht Club announced that I had been elected an honorary member for the duration of my stay in the island, and I received a cable from Captain Carter. Congratulations to a gallant gentleman who had so much courage in his convictions to carry on when safety and luxury were proposed. Signed, Carter. This message has always been a consolation during the attacks to which I was subsequently subjected. The man I had met in the middle of the ocean, a true seaman, had sent me a token of his esteem, admiration, and friendship. I spent a week of complete enchantment in Barbados in spite of the cumulative effects of exhaustion, which obliged me first to carry a stick and then to give up walking almost completely. I was driven all round this island paradise, accustoming myself again to the hues of green which the blue of the sea and the sky had almost made me forget, a rich, verdant green, as Christmas time is the Caribbean spring. I was most hospitably received by the governor, who, as a former prisoner of the Japanese, was able to appreciate better than anyone the moral effect of my recent experiences. A flood of congratulatory telegrams arrived from France, and the people in the streets, with their friendly familiarity, greeted me at each turn with, Hello, Doc. All this was most reassuring and comforting. With my beard, I became almost a legendary figure in Bridgetown, and the French colony there made me their honoured guest. However, it was time for me to leave the enchanted isles and return to France, where Jeannette, 
as she had said in her telegram, and my friends were awaiting me impatiently. On the 31st of December, the British West Indies Airways Company flew me as far as Puerto Rico. Calling on the way at Antigua, I learnt to my delight that Anne Davison, who had left the Canary some time after I did, had got as far as the island of Dominica. I immediately sent off a message to my friends, the Stanilands, with the news, which I knew would reassure them on her account. Arriving at Puerto Rico, I was passing through the immigration authorities when, to my astonishment, the American inspector threw up his hands in horror because I had no visa. It was useless for me to insist that I was only in transit. The immigration law had been altered while I was at sea and I needed a transit visa to pass through the United States. I was unable to continue my journey and had to stay where I was. The crew of the British plane which had brought me thus far saw to it that I was installed in a luxurious hotel in the town to wait for the visa, which they assured me could not take long. Without it, I would have to return through the British West Indies to Fort de France and leave there for home direct. It was no easy matter to get a visa on New Year's Day as everyone was on holiday. The immigration officers were most understanding, went to great pains and after a 24 hours wait in the charming town of San Juan de Puerto Rico, I was authorised to continue my journey and given a visa valid for 30 days. I took off under a mild spring sun and on arrival in New York found my friend Percy Knuth waiting for me. The city was enveloped in a snowstorm and it was terribly cold. I had not felt as frozen in a year as most of my passage across the Atlantic had been in the tropics. Barely a week earlier I had spent Christmas night stretched out on a beach under twinkling stars in the warm night air. The air trip had worn me out and I was obliged to put off the crossing of the Atlantic in spite of the impatience of my family at the other end. I spent most of the days stretched out on my bed in a hotel with the charming name of the White Whale at Sag Harbour, where my friends lived. Nevertheless, I had to move on. My friends in France were getting impatient. I took the plane on the evening of the 6th of January. The route was New York, Montreal, Gander, Paris. When we landed at Montreal, I was recognised by a group of young French Canadians who congratulated me on my voyage. Camera bulbs flashed all round me, to the great astonishment of an actress who was joining the plane and who asked, pointing at me, Who is that? Dr. Bombard, she was told. Dr. Bombard? That's right, the chap who has just crossed the Atlantic. Well, so what? She replied. I've been across the Atlantic too. The indignant air hostess abandoned the good lady without attempting to explain the somewhat special conditions of my crossing. During the flight, there was a brief alarm. Something had gone wrong with the heating system and it became so hot in the plane that there seemed a risk of fire. With magnificent calm, the hostess gave no indication to the passengers that there was any danger. In one of the nicest compliments ever paid to my voyage, she said, If we ever have to put down in the sea, let us hope it is today when you are there to look after us. Perhaps, after all, I had accomplished something. On arriving at Paris, she pointed out the crowd waiting for me. I felt as nervous as if I was going to take an examination. The plane stopped, the door opened, and I found myself faced by a surging crowd of welcoming friends who had come to greet my return to French soil. The wheel had come full circle. Chapter 16. Summing up. The voyage of the heretic is over. Now I have to fight for the understanding of my heresies and their acceptance as orthodox doctrine for future castaways. Any survivor of a disaster at sea should be able to reach land in as good a physical condition as I did. Mine was a perfectly normal case, 
and my health was that of the average man. I have had three attacks of jaundice in my life and several more or less serious ailments due to the effects of wartime undernourishment. I therefore made the crossing with no particular physical advantages. I was somewhat shrunken on arrival, it is true, but I got there. It was not a question of living well, but of surviving long enough to reach land or meet a ship. I claim to have proved that the sea itself provides sufficient food and drink to enable the battle for survival to be fought with perfect confidence. During the 65 days it took me to get from the Canaries to the West Indies, I enjoyed no particular good fortune, and my voyage cannot be considered an exceptional case or a mere hazardous exploit. I lost 55 pounds in weight and suffered various minor ills. I became seriously anemic. My red corpsicle count was 5 million at the start and 2.5 million at the arrival, and my haemoglobin level had reached the safety limit. The period following the light meal I had on board the Arachica was very nearly fatal. My blood pressure varied greatly with my state of mind. It remained more or less normal until the beginning of December and became dangerously low as my despair increased after that date. My meeting with the Arachica sent it up to normal again, after which it declined slowly with my growing fatigue. It showed clearly the effect on the system of extraneous events and their capacity to cause physiological disturbances and fluctuations in the state of health. I was racked by an attack of diarrhoea for 14 days, from the 26th of November to the 10th of December, with sizable hemorrhages. I nearly lost consciousness on two occasions, on the 23rd of November, when I had the premonition preceding the storm, and on the 6th of December when I wrote out my will. My skin became dehydrated, and I had a rash covering my whole body. I lost the nails from my toes. I developed serious defects of vision, suffered a marked loss in muscular tone, and was hungry. But I got there. For 65 days, I lived exclusively on what I could catch from the sea. My intake of proteins and fats was sufficient. The lack of carbohydrates doubtless contributed to my loss of weight. But I have proved that the safety margin calculated in advance in a laboratory was a correct estimate. As an example of the paramount importance of mental endurance over the physical, I only need to mention the psychological hunger which I suffered after meeting the Arachica, which had much more of a serious effect on my health than the organic hunger I endured with Palmer during our period of fast in the Mediterranean. The former variety is not true hunger, it is a desire for something else, always dangerous when the something else is not available. The latter causes pain and stomach cramp during the first 48 hours, which then die down to be replaced by somnolence and a general weakness. In the first instance, the organism is burning itself away, and in the second, it goes into a sort of hibernation. The medical examination which I underwent on arrival gave no indication of any condition caused by avitamosis. The plankton must therefore have been a sufficient source of vitamin C. I had no rainwater for the first 23 days, during the whole of that period, I proved conclusively that I could quench my thirst from fish and that the sea itself provides the liquid necessary to health. After leaving Monaco, I drank seawater for 14 days in all and fish juice for 43 days. I had conquered the menace of thirst at sea. I had been told that seawater was laxative, but during the long period of our Mediterranean fast, neither Palmer nor I had a single motion for 11 days. There was no sign of the predicted auto-intoxication and my mucous membranes never became dry. I shall give a full account of my medical conclusions in the thesis I am preparing, and, in collaboration with the French naval authorities, I am producing a handbook for the use of castaways which will summarise and codify the results of my experiment. 
I want to assert most emphatically that a life raft can remain at sea for much longer than ten days. It can be steered sufficiently to carry a castaway to safety. The heretic was a craft of this type. I have also suggested certain rules of conduct and employment which will keep shipwrecked survivors actively occupied all day, with their hopes concentrated on the supreme objective, survival. Even a man in the depths of despair can find a second wind which will enable him to pull himself together and carry on. The bottom of a life raft should carry, printed in the fabric, a map of the prevailing winds and currents in the world's oceans. Survivors of Atlantic wrecks are compelled by these winds and currents to make for America, whatever the distance. To give them hope and convince them that they will survive their ordeal, I would like to see printed on the map, remember the man who did it in 1952. To hope is to seek better things. The survivor of a shipwreck deprived of everything must never lose hope. The simple and brutal problem confronting him is that of death or survival. He will need to bolster his courage with all his resources and all his faith in life to fight off despair. I would like to add one more thought. A human life should only be risked in such an experiment as mine if some useful purpose is being served. If there are any young people who think that they see a shortcut to fame in setting off in a raft for America or elsewhere, I beg them to reflect or come and see me first. Led astray by false hopes, encouraged by some initial success or misled into thinking they are on some pleasure trip, they will not realize how desperate is the fight for life until it is too late and will no longer have the time to marshal their courage. Panic will only set in more quickly for having risked their lives to no useful purpose. There will be other and better reasons for such a sacrifice. But you, my brother Castaway, if you remain firm in belief and hope, you will see, as did Robinson Crusoe on his island, how your riches will increase from day to day. And now, I trust, there is no further reason for you to lose hope. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.